Welcome to Bitcoin Sermons, the podcast that preaches how Bitcoin is connected to the coming of Jesus. It's a fascinating topic, and I think it's like the elephant in the room that not many are really talking about, even though it's so obvious. Well, whether you're a Bitcoiner or a Christian or both, this podcast has something for you. I'd like to do something a little bit special in this episode because most of the world at this time of the year is celebrating the birth of Jesus Christ in this so-called Christmas season. And I personally grew up in this tradition and I have many warm memories of Christmas time, but something happened in the development of my understanding of the Bible that forever changed my perspective on Christmas. And I would like to explore that with you. And this will reach you in a different way, depending on where you're at in your own individual experience with Christ and with the Bible and where you're at in your understanding of Christmas itself. So let me just kind of give you a wide overview of where we're going to go with this topic, and then we'll dive into a little bit more of the details. Basically, if I could just put this in a nutshell, there came a point in time where I noticed and began studying and understanding that a lot of the imagery, a lot of the symbolism, a lot of the rituals or traditions that are involved in our traditional Christmas celebrations actually carry meanings that are completely antithetical to Christianity. And the more I understood that Christmas didn't mean what we thought it meant, I began to value and participate less and less in the traditional ways that we celebrate Christmas. And this was kind of a sad thing for me because there is a lot of warmth and joy in the way that I grew up celebrating Christmas. And to leave that behind is naturally a little bit saddening. But it was a necessary step, at least for me. And part of this process was the realization that Jesus, according to the Bible, was not even born in the Christmas season at all. And maybe we'll get into the details of that later in the episode. But right now, I just kind of want to give you the big picture that when I realized that, you know, that was kind of the last straw that really said, hey, you know, how can you even celebrate an event when you know this isn't when the event took place? And some people just say, oh, well, you know, we don't know when he was born, so it doesn't really matter when we celebrate his birth. And I feel like that's a little bit of a cop-out argument. But in any case, in my journey I came to the point where Christmas became a non-celebration until one year in particular 
The understanding actually came through a group Bible study that I was part of. The understanding actually came as to the exact date of Christ's birth. And this is very intricate. It's a very detailed study that involves understanding the Jewish calendar that was in use at the time of Christ and piecing together all of the bits of evidence that are presented in the scriptures, in the Gospels, uh, regarding what was taking place historically at the time of Christ's birth. And putting all that together and drawing upon the best efforts of researchers to study these topics, we were able to arrive at the true date of Christ's birth and confirm it a couple of different ways. And so this gave a whole new opportunity to recognize Christ's birth, to celebrate Christmas, in essence, at the proper time and in a more truthful way that I was comfortable doing out of the joy and honesty of my heart knowing that the things that I was celebrating and talking about and the understanding surrounding it and the symbols involved in it and the new traditions that were involved were all based on a foundation of truth. They were sincere and I could put my whole heart into that. But still, there's kind of a problem in that over the years, because the church or shall I say churches, to refer to the many denominations, the churches have gone so far from the scripture. And ultimately in 2015, because of the anti-Christian laws that were passed nationwide in the United States, ultimately the churches sided with the state in order to maintain their tax exemption status. They basically went along with the state and denied the biblical principles that the church has ever stood for. And so that kind of crossed a line for me that let me know that it was time to renounce my church membership. And so in 2015, I did that because I could no longer, with a clear conscience, call myself a member of a church that denies the Bible on matters that are so clear and so non-negotiable in the sight of God, accepting things mandated by the state that the Bible calls an abomination to God. God does not change, and what is an abomination to him in times past is still an abomination to him in times present and will still be in time's future. So although society changes and culture changes and social norms change, what we are comfortable with changes as things change around us gradually or over generations. That doesn't change the basic principles of God's law. And I believe with many others that in order to maintain my own personal fidelity to God, it's necessary when a church or any other body takes a stand that is so 
much in conflict with God and his principles that I, in order to be faithful to God, must denounce that. And ultimately, when the other side demonstrates an unwillingness to reform, then the responsibility is on me to make a separation in order not to be supporting or supportive in any way of something that God ultimately condemns. And if one does not do that, if one is not willing to make that separation, then ultimately the punishment, the consequences of the unfaithfulness will be suffered by the individual who does not separate himself. God calls his people to be holy. That means separated for a special purpose. And that's not meant as an exclusionary kind of separation, but it's meant as a dedication, just as vessels, cups and dishes and bowls and pots are dedicated to specific purposes. Uh, This was done in ancient times in the Bible. It was done particularly for the temple services. Certain vessels were dedicated for use there. But it's also something that's very practical to daily life. Every home does the same thing. Every home dedicates certain vessels to certain purposes. And you don't mix those purposes for good reasons. And just, to, just as, an, as, a, as an obvious example, we separate vessels for food-related purposes from vessels that are not for food-related purposes. And this extends even into our laws and our material selection for various products. There are materials that are designated as food-grade and materials that are not. And you wouldn't use the non-food-grade materials for food-related purposes for the simple reason that it would contaminate the food and ultimately it would cause problems. But that principle also applies just in matters of practice as well, not necessarily having to do with the material itself. For example, if you have a vessel, maybe a trash can, for example, you would never think of using that trash can as a vessel for food-related purposes, other than maybe disposal. And that's simply because it becomes used and you could say tainted or contaminated with garbage and any food that you would put in that vessel would thereby get contaminated as well. I mean, these are just things that are common sense to us. And if you would take a vessel that has been used for dirty purposes and you want to use that in a clean environment, you have to go through a special process to cleanse that vessel. This might seem a little bit off topic, but it's really not. And the Bible talks a lot about the cleansing of vessels, and that's because it has a spiritual application. But that cleansing can take different forms. And generally, in the Bible, it's described as kind of a ceremonial thing. And instructions are actually given as to how to cleanse different types of vessels, depending on the materials that they are made of. And for example, a metal vessel can be cleansed by putting it through fire or heat, in other words. And we use this same principle today because we know that heat 
destroys pathogens. And so, for example, if you cook something or you purify it in boiling water, that is a way to remove pathogens and cleanse an article for use in food-related purposes or any other purposes that require extreme cleanliness, medical purposes, for example, etc. And so it's very important to follow the proper procedures for cleansing articles that are going to be set apart for a special purpose, dedicated, so to speak, for holiness. That's what being dedicated for a holy purpose means. And once an article or vessel is prepared for that new purpose, it must be guarded and kept clean, kept sanctified, kept separate. That's what it means to keep something holy. It's kept from purposes that would make it dirty again. And so, for example, you wouldn't take a dish that you use for cooking and eating and use that for a dirty purpose because then you would have to go through the laborious process of cleansing that thoroughly again in order to reuse it for the holy purpose. And so these are basic principles of cleanliness that the Bible explains. And that's why the Bible is so clear, especially in the Old Testament, but it's also an important topic in the New Testament. It's very clear about the importance of maintaining cleanliness and about recognizing, being able to recognize the difference between what is clean and what is unclean or dirty in modern language. Now, this is not only practical for physical life, but it has a spiritual application as well. And the spiritual application is the fact that we are all vessels in a sense. That is, a vessel is something that can contain. You can put things into a vessel and a vessel holds those things so that they can be drawn out at a later time. And Jesus made this very illustration in his very first miracle that was conducted at a wedding feast when he turned the water into wine. Water, pure, clear water, was put into the vessels. And then when it was taken back out of those vessels, those vessels which were set apart for a holy purpose, that wine was drawn out and given to the guests at the feast, and it had been improved. It had become wine. And many lessons can be drawn from that. Now, we as human beings are vessels. We can contain things. But it's not about containing physical things. One could say maybe we do eat and in that way contain our food. But this isn't in the manner that is meant by a vessel. Because that food that you put in then becomes waste to be discarded. It cannot be drawn back out to be reused as in the sense of a vessel. So how is it then that human beings are vessels? Well, simply put, we are spiritual vessels. Now remember what spiritual means. We've been talking about this time and time again. Last episode again, we talked about it, that spiritual, anything that has to do with spirit or breath 
or air or heaven, heavenly things, spiritual things. This all refers to the metaphysical. It refers to things which are not seen. It refers to abstract concepts. And in that way, we can understand how human beings are spiritual beings. How are we spiritual? Because we have a mind that can comprehend abstract concepts. It can store information. And information can be recalled for use at a later time. And in that way, we are vessels, spiritual vessels. We are not vessels that you can put physical objects into and then remove those objects later. That's not what human beings are made for. But we do have a mind that is made to take in information, to take in non-tangible things, to take in metaphysical things, ideas, emotions, concepts, knowledge, information, understanding. And we're able to store and even process that information and later recall it, bring it out and put it to use in an effective way. And we're even able to process that information in a way that it becomes more valuable, more useful. We're able to assimilate information and increase its value. Similarly to how wine, for example, is put in vessels and then stored away for later use. And during that time of storage, it's actually fermenting. And that increases the value of the wine so that at a later time, when that wine is brought forth, it has a higher value because it has been processed in this vessel in which it was stored. In a similar way, information that we take into our mind is fermented, so to speak. It's processed over time through our life experiences. And in that way, it's enriched and it becomes more and more valuable as our mind interconnects the information and fills in missing pieces and builds a more comprehensive model of the ideas that are filling our minds. And this happens both at a conscious level and at a subconscious level. This becomes particularly interesting when we talk about, you know, in the last couple of episodes, we've been talking about the foundation of the kingdom of God. And in many contexts, the Bible describes the dedication of the temple as involving the dedication of vessels also for the temple. The point is that human beings are vessels, spiritual vessels, mental vessels, if you will, because the things of the mind are the things of the spirit. They are the intangible things. And as vessels, we are to be set apart for holy purposes. And interestingly, Jesus noted the fact that what defiles a person is not what he eats. In other words, it's not about the physical things that are put into the body that defile a person as a container would be defiled or made dirty by putting into it dirty things. No, Jesus said that a person is defiled or made dirty by the things that come out of the mouth. 
And he doesn't mean physical things, he means words. Because the words come from the mind, and the mind is the container, the spiritual container of the human body. And when a person speaks, it's out of the mind that the words come. And those words then reflect whether the contents and thus the vessel are clean or dirty. So as vessels, as Christians who are called to be separate and holy in the sense of being dedicated to the purposes of God, it should be that the things we put into our mind, the things we process there, and the words that come out of our mouth that are the fruits of what is in our mind should be dedicated to the purposes of God. And so when a church, just to bring this all back now to the point that was being made, when a church speaks contrary to the purposes of God to support initiatives of the state that are in conflict with God's will, that shows defilement of the church. And by participating in that, by taking in those words, by hearing, by listening, by by taking that in to oneself, one as an individual also becomes defiled. Unless, of course, that information is processed in the proper way, and then the appropriate words are uttered that demonstrate the true purposes of God in that context. So, in other words, if the church is not speaking according to the word of God, the members as individuals have a responsibility to speak the truth against the word of the church in defense of the word of God. And in that way, through the words of their mouth, as Jesus said, they can maintain their dedication to the purposes of God, their holiness. And that's why the reformers all through the ages take Martin Luther as the example, had a responsibility, had a duty, had an urge by God to speak against the errors in the church and to defend the true principles of God that are expressed in his word. But in so doing, there comes a point where the church has taken such a firm stand that the reformer, the protester, has no choice but to suffer censorship or part ways. And so that's ultimately the point that I came to in 2015, because the church as a whole had adopted the LGBT tolerance agenda of the state in order to maintain the state's financial favor, to maintain their 501c3 nonprofit status. Okay, so that was a little bit of a detour, but I'm still kind of on the topic of this overview, and the point that I wanted to make here was just that once having separated from the errors in the church and from the church itself, ultimately, it becomes a lot more difficult to enjoy the warmth and joy of a community of believers who share the same beliefs and can truly share the same joy in the knowledge of truth that they hold. And it's only with sharing experiences together with others of the same belief that you can truly 
regain that joy and that shared happiness about the events that you're celebrating. And so just as I was able to experience that in a small way with others of like mind who also understood and recognized the true birth date of Jesus Christ, I want to kind of talk about how that journey that I've described here, that journey of going from enjoying Christmas without a true understanding of what the meaning of it was, to the loss of Christmas, so to speak, once I discovered that the things that I was doing were not based in truth, and then going from there to a rediscovery or to a discovery of the truth surrounding the topic that then grew into a new joy in celebrating in truth the birth of Christ with others of like mind. And that experience as a whole, I would like to bring to a new topic, to a new area. And that has to do with the purpose and topic of this entire podcast, which is what does Bitcoin have to do with the coming of Jesus Christ? And so, I mean, we're talking about celebrating Christmas here. And the coming of Christ, the first coming, is what Christmas is all about. And the second coming is what Bitcoin has something to do with. And so Christmas is involved both ways, both as a celebration of Christ's first appearance and, well, we could say an anticipation of his second coming, of his return, because he left the earth promising to return. And that's what the book of Revelation is all about, the last book of the New Testament. And we've seen in this podcast that Bitcoin has a lot to do with that. So I guess what I want to do here, you know, and this is kind of following in the vein of the last two episodes in the sense that, and I didn't really get to explain this in the two previous episodes, but the topics of those episodes were in part a result of the fact that they coincided with the anniversary of the laying of the foundation of the temple of God, the old temple in the history of Jerusalem, which foreshadows the laying of the foundation of the kingdom of God for all eternity. And that's what sort of flowed into the topics of the last two episodes. But that anniversary of the founding of the temple actually turned into a feast of its own called the Feast of the Dedication or the Feast of Lights, which had a whole story behind it in which there was a miracle that kept the light burning for eight days until oil could be consecrated for the purposes of keeping the lamps lit in the temple going forward as the temple was being cleansed after being desecrated by Antiochus Epiphanes. So there's a lot of, I mean, that's deep. That that whole story is deep in itself. And we could perhaps draw an illustration, a, a comparison between that cleansing of the temple at that time with what is happening in the world today on a much greater scale and with the emergence of Bitcoin and together with its promise of 
reshaping the character of society through its characteristics as a monetary system. And so the Feast of Dedication, also known as Hanukkah, which actually does fall in the wintertime, does to a degree have something to do with Christmas in the sense that it's about the restoration of the temple of God after a period of desecration by Antiochus Epiphanes, who is generally understood as a prototype of the Antichrist. He serves as a type, giving a typological illustration for what is arguably happening right now in our day as the antitype, the real antichrist, so to speak, and the mark of the beast system as a whole is coming into existence. So the point here and why I wanted to give this sort of overview before diving into the subject is that there's a whole story here. There's a whole story that needs to be understood in its entire context. And to a great degree, we've lost it because it it has sort of taken shape over so long time spans that it's hard for human beings to kind of piece it all together without doing some sort of a review. And so I guess what I'm trying to say here, let me just try to make it simple. In my personal experience, I went from recognizing that I was living a lie in the way that I was celebrating Christmas. I went from there to a sort of a sad state of not really having anything to celebrate to a new state of understanding the true timing of Christmas and being able to celebrate it in its proper way. And from there, extending that understanding even further through the Feast of Dedication to being able to celebrate in a way that is very connected and relevant to the life that we are living today. And that is so important because it brings us or brought me full circle from the first advent of Jesus Christ that was made so real to me in my childhood through the stories of Christmas all the way to the second advent of Jesus Christ, which is very real right now in the things that we are living. And so I think that we need to bring those stories to life, bring those stories to the forefront of the minds of people today. And that's what's motivating this particular episode of this podcast I want to show you in this episode how the traditions that have been so warm to us in the past have great relevance to what is happening right now. And I want to inspire you with a new understanding of Christmas that will light a fire in your heart with the passion to share this with other people. I recently had the opportunity to see a modern Christmas celebration, modern but in the traditional context of Christianity. And essentially it boiled down to a collection of songs that were mostly familiar, some not, but it felt very disconnected from reality. And that's not how it should be. We should be able to celebrate in a way 
that strengthens our faith in the context of what is happening right now in the world and in our lives in particular. You know, when the shepherds were watching their flocks, looking forward to the coming of the Savior, surely you've heard the story, and the angels from heaven appeared to them and brought them the music and the joyous message of the fact that Christ had been born. That's the experience that I want you to have today. Can you put yourself in the shoes of those shepherds? Can you understand the joy that they received upon learning that the salvation they had been looking for as a people for thousands of years had come to them and that they could go and see him in the manger there in Bethlehem. And even though he was just an infant, they could know that the hope, the hope of Israel, the hope of the world since its foundation, since the fall of Adam and Eve had finally arrived. We have something in our hands today, something newly born, Bitcoin, something that's still an infant, still growing, and yet it is the foundation of a new kingdom. Have you heard the message of the heavenly messengers that have testified of the birth of this kingdom? Have you gone to see? Have you studied Bitcoin for yourself? Have you gone like the shepherds to the stable, to the manger, to see this new invention for yourself? Have you invested yourself in it like the shepherds did who put their hope and confidence their faith in this infant king you know everyone in the bitcoin realm says bitcoin is still young we're still early they say that all the time and yet at the same time they know that this is the answer this is the solution to the broken financial system and to all the ills that have come from it and this gives them the hope and the assurance and the confidence to put their trust in Bitcoin even today, knowing that it is still in its infancy. Do you see what I mean? Do you see how the message of Christmas, the message of salvation, the message, you know, and a, a very important point here is that Jesus came to save us from our sins, or maybe in a more general way to state that, he came to save us from the fallen condition of sin as a whole, to undo the fall of Adam and Eve, in essence. But yet Israel, at that point in time, had a misconception about the nature of the salvation that Christ would come to bring. They thought that it was to be a salvation of their physical kingdom from the control of the Romans, ultimately to reestablish Israel as a nation under God, as the people of God, the kingdom of God here on earth. Well, we have a similar situation in the Bitcoin community. Did Bitcoin come to us as a way to give us physical wealth, to establish us in this material world and to throw off the shackles of government and its overreach? Well, certainly so, but not in the same way, perhaps, that people have envisioned. 
Jesus also freed all those who believe in him from the oppression of the Romans, but not in the same way that Israel had originally imagined by reestablishing their nation and giving them the actual power, physical power over the Romans. Instead, Christ established a spiritual kingdom known as Christendom, which is a kingdom that is not of this world, as he described it. It's not of the physical world. And Bitcoin does the same thing. It establishes a new kingdom that is a kingdom that is not of this physical world. The things that you possess on the blockchain are intangible coins. They aren't coins you can put in your pocket. They are information. It's metaphysical. It's things of the mind. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's not of this world. And so just in the same way that the birth of Christ ushered in a new kingdom, the birth of Bitcoin is also ushering in a new kingdom. And it's granting independence from the oppression of the Romans, so to speak, again today but not necessarily in the same way that we tend to imagine. Just as the kingdom that the birth of Christ ushered in did not liberate the Christians from Roman rule in the same way that Israel at the time of Christ expected the Messiah to do. So with that in mind, I want to just plant the seed here that when we watch how Bitcoin develops, we need to keep an open mind and not discount various developments just because they don't come in the same form that we might be tempted to expect. And perhaps above all, the lesson here is that just as Christianity spread through personal evangelism, primarily, and that despite the persecution of, you know, from all sides and the putting to death of the martyrs and, and, and many different things, despite all the persecution of the ages, what came out, what developed out of that was the expansion of this non-tangible kingdom of Jesus Christ called Christendom. And I think to a degree we've kind of lost the sense of that in modern days, because Christianity has become so materialistic. You know, we look at churches and we look at revenue and we look at possessions, buildings, and, you know, all, all the same structures that we deal with in every other aspect of worldly life. And we kind of lose sight of the fact that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is an intangible kingdom. It's a metaphysical kingdom. It's something we don't see with the eye. It's only something we can comprehend with the mind. And it's built on a foundation of truth, which is also intangible in a certain sense. We have evidence, we have records of Christ and his resurrection and of his promise to return and all these things. But ultimately, we have to demonstrate faith in those things. We have to take in that information, that evidence, into our mind as intangible ideas, things you cannot touch, you cannot go back and, and, and see, literally with your own eyes, that Christ did resurrect. You cannot put your hands into his wounds like Thomas did in order to remove all doubt. 
you must exercise faith in these intangible things, in this information that you can put into your mind by reading the Bible and other spiritual sources in the form of information. And ultimately, it's a matter of faith. The spiritual kingdom of God is not a physical kingdom. And Bitcoin is the same way. It's not real money. People are right when they say that. It's not real money in the sense that it has no physical component. It's not something you can hold. It has no material, no matter associated with it that you can say this matter has a particular value. That's one of the greatest criticisms against Bitcoin. I should say one of the most common criticisms. It's not a great criticism. It's a common criticism. And that's that because it has no matter associated with it, like, for example, gold does, it has no intrinsic value. But that's exactly what makes Bitcoin pure, is that it has no intrinsic value. Because once a money has intrinsic value, it becomes part of this physical world, and it's subject to the problems of this physical world. Bitcoin is a pure money that is 100% pure. It's 100% abstract. It's 100% metaphysical. It's, it's just information. And that enables it to be the money for a purely metaphysical kingdom, the kingdom of Jesus Christ, which is not of this world. It has no physical component, material component. So the comparison here is incredible. And what we need, what I would like to see is for us as Christian Bitcoiners to develop this story around Christmas in the context of what Bitcoin is doing here and now. You know, recently there was a talent show put on by the Orange Pill app. That's a Bitcoin social app. And in this talent show, one of the three contestants that almost won the prize was a woman who sung a Christmas song in the context of a Bitcoin talent contest, a woman who is pregnant. And part of the reason why her performance was so well-liked was not only because it was a great performance, but because of the meaning, the symbolism embodied in that. Ultimately, a different contestant won, who put together a very secular, but yet also very impactful overview of what Bitcoin is doing and has been doing through its history. And I think it was a worthy victor in the contest. But I just wanted to mention the other contestant that this is something that we should develop as Christians is this storytelling ability, the ability to convey the message of Christmas in a way that reaches the heart of people today because of what Bitcoin is doing in the world today. And so I would just like to try to do that here in this podcast in a small way. And the way I thought to do this was just by taking an existing hymn, a Christmas hymn, and kind of talking you through it and retelling the story in light of what Bitcoin is doing for us today. Okay, so let's go ahead and do that. Now, the hymn that I had in mind, it just kind of 
came to me. It's one of my favorite Christmas hymns. And it was originally written in the sense of looking forward to the coming of the Messiah the first time. But it's been kept as a Christmas song in modern times because it is so applicable also to the yearning, to the to the spirit, to the experience that we have looking forward to Christ's return, to his coming the second time. And this is the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. And even in the title itself, you can hear the yearning of the soul. All right, I thought I'd start this off by reading a little bit of the history of this particular hymn. So I'm just going to be reading this, and I don't necessarily endorse everything that I'm going to read here. I'm just reading this from a book. During the season of Advent, from December 17 to 23, the church in the 9th century, or even earlier, sang the seven O antiphons, one each day, at Vespers, before and after the Magnificat. An antiphon is a responsive singing of a portion of a psalm or scripture by alternate choirs. These are called the O antiphons because each begins with a long, drawn-out O, followed by a designation of our Lord in one of his titles. The O was an indication of an earnest longing for the advent of our Savior. In the 12th century, these antiphons were collected into Latin verse, and from this, John Mason Neal, who lived from 1818 to 1866, translated them into an English metrical version. His first effort appeared in his Medieval Hymns, 1851, although several revisions were later made. The original began, Draw near, draw near, Emmanuel. Of the seven titles of our Lord, namely Wisdom, Lord, Root of Jesse, Key of David, Dayspring, King Desired, and Emmanuel, Neil used five, omitting Wisdom and King. In this version, the second and third stanzas complete the seven O's. They were translated in 1916 by Henry Sloan Coffin. He was born January 5, 1877, in New York City, graduated from Yale University, and became a Presbyterian minister. He was president of Union Theological Seminary for many years and a teacher of hymnology. He was author of several books dealing with current religious concerns. He died November 25, 1954. Veni Emmanuel, the name of the tune, is typical of the plain song that was the customary form of singing in the early Christian church. The music had no bar lines, the rhythm and accent being determined by the words. It was in unison, all singing the melody, and not intended to be harmonized nor to be accompanied by a musical instrument. The melody was unearthed in 1966 by Mother Thomas Moore, also known as Mary Berry, in the Paris National Library in a small 15th century processional used by a community of French Franciscan nuns. The antiphonal effect in this present hymn may be obtained by one section singing the stanzas 
and a second section responding with the refrain, the melody of which, with the exception of the first two notes, is an exact replica of the first two lines of the plain song. Okay, so there you have a little bit about the background of both the lyrics and the tune. And there it was emphasized to what I mentioned about the O, referring to the yearning, the longing for the coming of the Savior. Now, it's interesting that in this song, it was mentioned that his names as Wisdom and King were omitted. So, in that sense, this song begs for the arrival of wisdom and of Jesus as king, two names which we could rightly associate with Bitcoin. We've seen very clearly, especially in the last couple of episodes, and generally speaking, how Bitcoin through the private key allows every individual to be sovereign or a king over his own wealth, just as Jesus himself was Lord over all. And who can deny that wisdom is embodied in the Bitcoin system as a whole, in how it perfectly balances all of the dynamics in the creation and use of money to enable a fair and just system of exchange between individual persons. All right, so with that background about the song, let's go ahead and look at the lyrics and just kind of talk through what this can mean to us today. So verse 1, O come, O come, Emmanuel, and ransom captive Israel. Pause right there. I just want to say it's about yearning for Emmanuel. And, And by the way, Emmanuel is a name which means God with us. Now, why was Israel yearning for God to be with them? It was because they had become captives. They had become slaves. They were under the power of someone other than God. Doesn't that describe the situation of the world today? We have come under the captivity of the financial system. We have become slaves of people who are unelected just because they have the power to control the money. It's not the presidents and dictators of the world who control the people and who control the monetary system. It's the banks and the bankers and those who are in charge of the monetary policy. And perhaps not even the ones who are visibly recognizable, but the ones who hold the purse strings behind the scenes. They are the ones who ultimately exercise control because of their power to bestow wealth in the channels of their choosing in such a way that that wealth is continually aggregated back to themselves in a cycle that maintains their power. And that's something, that's a cycle that Bitcoin breaks. And this song speaks about the yearning for God with us, for Emmanuel, to ransom captive Israel. Now, what does it mean to ransom a captive? 
This is interesting because it doesn't speak about freeing a captive. It speaks about ransoming a captive. Now, ransoming a captive implies setting the captive free. It includes that. But to ransom a captive means to pay, to pay the ransom, to pay the cost of freeing the captive. Now, if a person commits a crime and ends up in prison, ends up captive, the ransom might be, for example, if the crime was theft, the ransom might be a sum of money in proportion to what was stolen in order to make restitution, as an example. And so if we think about how we have become captives to the financial system, what is the ransom that has to be paid in order to set us free? It's clear that in the first advent of Jesus Christ, it was about captivity to sin. And the cost of becoming free was to pay the price of sin, which is death. Because Adam and Eve sinned, death came upon them, and death has come upon all human beings ever since, insofar as all have sinned and have come under the curse of sin. The ransom is therefore paying the price, paying the debt, paying the cost of the sin. And that's what Jesus Christ paid when he died on the cross. He did not deserve to die. He was declared innocent even by the secular authorities and indirectly by the religious authorities insofar that Pilate tore his garments, proving himself unworthy of the priesthood and many other such things. But how does the death of one man anyway pay the price for the death of Adam and all successive generations since him who have also died. In other words, if our forefathers have died, have they not paid the price for their sin? And how did Christ ransom them by his death? And the answer is in the resurrection. Now, every man who has died has died justly. He has deserved to die on the basis of the fact that he has sinned. And the meaning here is sin, going back to the Garden of Eden, sin is simply disobeying the law of life. God's law is the law of life. And if you disobey the law of life, you die. It's just, it's a law. It's not a question of arbitrary punishment. It's not a question of whether God doesn't like you because you did something he doesn't like and therefore he's punishing you with death. No, it's, it's not arbitrary. It's natural law that if you act in ways that are contrary to life, you suffer death. And so every man who has died has died justly under the law. But to be ransomed means that a payment is made that comes from an undeserving source. In other words, the money that is paid to ransom a prisoner is coming from somebody who did no wrong. It's substitutionary, just as the death of Christ was substitutionary for our death. And that is why the Bible says that when Christ died, many were resurrected in the city of Jerusalem. It's very interesting. If you read the texts carefully, they were resurrected before Christ himself was resurrected. It was when he died that they were resurrected. And that's because the price had been paid 
for their death, and therefore they could be liberated from the prison of the grave. But this is still not quite the full depth of what it means to be ransomed as a captive, and it doesn't fully explain the sacrifice that Christ made. Now, this goes even deeper than that, but I think we can just appreciate the fact that even if one of us dies before Jesus comes, we can rest in the assurance that we will live again by faith in Christ because he paid the ransom for our captivity to death. But now, looking at this in the context of life today, we have come under the captivity of the financial system. And in order to be free from this captivity, a ransom must be paid. And what is that ransom? And how does Bitcoin factor into this? Now, as Christians, we understand that Jesus is Lord over the entire universe. He's the creator. He's Lord over the whole world, over the whole universe, but also over the whole world. And I think maybe for the purposes of this episode, let's just keep things to the scope of the physical world, because that's easier for us to understand and talk about. But know that these things apply to the spiritual world as well. And that's kind of the same thing in regards to the topic of death and being freed from death. There is more than just the first death. There's also the second death. And that's the deeper aspect that we could go into. But I think for this episode, let's leave that off for maybe a future episode. And let's just talk about the first level of understanding, which is the first death. And in terms of Christ's ownership, let's talk about his lordship over this world. Now, just to kind of establish that a little bit more, it was God who gave the world to Adam as his dominion. So Adam was the lord of this world, so to speak, from the beginning. But through obedience to Satan and disobedience to God, Adam became a servant or a slave to Satan. And that made, in essence, Satan lord over this world. Okay, now Christ came to redeem mankind and to restore man's rightful ownership over this world. Now, ownership transmits from father to son, from generation to generation. And so the dominion over this planet by Adam, Adam's dominion over the, over the world as given by God, which was sort of enshrined in the law of nature, Adam's right to this world has transmitted down through the generations to all of his descendants up to, let's talk first of all, up to Jesus Christ. So Jesus Christ, as a son of Adam, had legal right to this world, as do we all, as children of Adam. But the problem is that insofar as all have sinned, aside from redemption through Christ, we are all, in a sense, servants of sin, servants to Satan. So he ultimately has the upper hand still, and he has had the upper hand throughout the generations, insofar as mankind has been walking in disobedience to God. 
and therefore in obedience to Satan. By the way, Satan's law is do whatever you want, do as thou wilt. It's a very broad law, a very permissible law, whereas God's law is seen as being more restrictive rather than permissive. And so it's a mutual exclusion. To obey God's law and its restrictions is contrary to Satan's law of do whatever you want. And to disobey God's law, which is to do whatever you want, is to obey Satan's law. Okay? So you're either obeying God or you're obeying Satan, one or the other. And so through the generations, from Adam on down, the lineage of the people of God has been striving for obedience to God. And in that way, they, as the heirs of the dominion over this world, they were striving to maintain God's right, God's influence, God's possession of this world, and not to lose this world to defection to Satan. But unfortunately, the people of God have been outnumbered, generally speaking, by the people of Satan. Not to say they are actively evil, but just people who do not obey the laws of God. They, by default, support the claims of Satan over this planet. And so, ultimately, what we are dealing with here is a planetary battle, or to put it in less aggressive terms, you could say it's a political battle between who's going to be the owner of this planet or the ruler of this planet. Is it going to be God or is it going to be Satan? And ultimately, it's a contention for winner takes all. And so how is that ultimately going to turn out? And that's why it has been so critical for the people of God to maintain the fire of truth, so to speak, the light of truth, all through the generations as a continuous light to keep the lineage of the children of God alive to inherit ownership of the entire world, ultimately. Now, this becomes highly interesting. This, what we've talked about here is just basic understanding of Christianity and of the battle between good and evil as it's playing out on the earth. But it becomes highly fascinating when we look at this in the light of Bitcoin and what Bitcoin brings to the world today. Because Bitcoin has a hard cap, 21 million coins, and it is generally, it is widely understood, I should say it's understood to Bitcoiners, that this 21 million encompasses or embodies or represents the wealth of the entire planet. And even though Bitcoin is still in its infancy now, it is understood that when Bitcoin has been adopted by the whole world, that those 21 million coins will represent the wealth of the entire planet distributed to the hands of humanity. This is fascinating because it shows that humanity is actually receiving, through ownership of Bitcoin, is actually receiving a portion of this earth to own. That is essentially the promise, the spiritual promise that God gave to those who believe that they would ultimately inherit the earth. Fascinating, isn't it? So the only question at this point, once you understand that Bitcoin's 21 million represent the wealth of the entire world, the only question is, who's going to ultimately own it? 
who's going to ultimately inherit the world. And not that it's going to be one person. Are you among that number? And will you, will your lineage of ownership, so to speak, through your transactions on the blockchain, will it survive to the end? Those who own Bitcoin today are not the same ones who will own Bitcoin tomorrow. Some will sell, some will buy. A lot of people put overemphasis on OG Bitcoiners and their overwhelming potential to influence the market and such things. For example, what if Satoshi Nakamoto were a malicious party and one day he comes on the scene to wreak havoc? This is what some skeptics worry about, or at least they purport to worry about in order to make counter-arguments against Bitcoin. But Bitcoin is designed in such a way that the most they can do is dump their coins on the market. And that could have a temporary inflationary effect, but it's only temporary. And that's the beauty of Bitcoin, is that it breaks this cycle that I described earlier of the existing financial system, the one that has brought us into captivity. It, has, it breaks this cycle of being able to put wealth, to dilute the wealth of others, and at the same time reap benefits from that that refill your own pockets. That's what the existing system enables. But Bitcoin breaks that cycle. And so any wealthy Bitcoiner who dumps a lot of coins on the market, perhaps as a malicious actor, would only be able to have a temporary influence. And soon that effect would dissipate. And all that wealth that he dumped onto the market would be in the hands of others who are most likely more righteous than he. And so in this way, Bitcoin is a system that enables the ownership of the earth to be redistributed over time, reallocated to those who are the best stewards of the earth. It's a fascinating system, and we could dig a lot deeper into that. But I guess I've kind of gotten a little off the topic here, but let's just bring this back to the ransoming of the captives. So we have been uh, taken into captivity by a system that sort of cycles the wealth to those in power and robs the common person, robs the average Christian, for example, of the ability to gain and maintain independence, financial independence. And Bitcoin brings that back by allowing us to hold value in a way that cannot be siphoned off through inflation and taxes and other means wrongly by uh, powers behind the scenes who are acting in their own interest. But this still doesn't really explain the concept of a ransom. Now, every time you buy Bitcoin, you have to exchange it for something. And most of the time, when you're just doing a trade, you're trading a fiat currency directly or indirectly, for Bitcoin. And so if it's the fiat money that has enslaved us, if that's the debt, which is literally what it is, the fiat money is debt. It's not an asset, it's debt. And so it rightly represents the captive 
ransom, so to speak, the, the cost of our captivity. However much fiat money or assets you hold is actually debt. And to be liberated from that debt, you have to have a ransom of equal value to pay that off. And essentially, you do that by buying Bitcoin in exchange for your fiat value, for your fiat money or for your assets or anything that you want to convert to Bitcoin. And so Bitcoin itself, as a representation of the wealth of the world, is also the ransom for our liberation, just as Jesus Christ, who as the creator embodied the authority over the whole world. It was rightfully his. He paid himself. He gave himself his life as the ransom for the world. It's deep. And Bitcoin is a reflection of that today. Bitcoin comes to us as the true estimate of the value of the world in a fixed form of 21 million coins that has been given to us as the ransom, as the way out of the debt-based financial system, the system that keeps us in bondage, in captivity. Wow, I mean, I think that's impressive. And it's really meaningful when you read the words of this song in that context. Now, we mentioned how Emmanuel means God with us. Now, if we look at Bitcoin as something that is with us, it's even with us personally in so far as we run our own Bitcoin nodes or operate our own Bitcoin miners at home. Bitcoin is with us just as God should be with us in our homes, at our family altar, in our worship. Could we say Bitcoin is in the sense that it is the financial foundation of the kingdom of God? Could we not say that in a certain sense... It represents God with us, his power, his righteousness, his justice in the financial system with us, close and personal. So when we say, oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, God with us, can we not say that in a certain sense that has been fulfilled through Bitcoin? Can we not say, oh, come, oh, come, Bitcoin to global adoption? and ransom captive Christians. Going on with the text of the hymn, who mourn in lonely exile here until the Son of God appear. Wow, wow, isn't that deep? Rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel shall come to thee, O Israel. Or we could say, rejoice, rejoice. Bitcoin has come to thee, O Christian. This song was written in the frame of mind of looking forward to Christ's first advent, but it is sung today in the attitude of looking forward to Christ's second advent. Well, let's go on to verse 2. O come, thou wisdom from on high. This is talking about heavenly wisdom, wisdom from on high heavenly or spiritual wisdom. That's to say, wisdom that is non-tangible. So, wisdom involving non-tangible assets, we could also say. Let's just think about Bitcoin as wisdom here. O come, thou wisdom from on high. Spiritual wisdom. O come, 
Bitcoin and order all things far and nigh. Doesn't this embody, doesn't this encapsulate the hope of widespread Bitcoin adoption and the justice that it will bring to the world to rebalance the power and bring back the ability of individuals to act in good conscience to restore health and vibrance to not only the economy, but to the world as a whole. Isn't that what this embodies? Do you see how the words to this song can be understood in a completely different way that applies very clearly to the goals and hopes that we have right now as Bitcoiners and as Christian Bitcoiners? Continuing the second verse, to us, the path of knowledge show. In other words, show us the path of knowledge. You could associate that with studying Bitcoin, which changes us. It, it, it teaches us. It shows us knowledge. All those who have studied Bitcoin in any serious way have been changed by it. It has changed their perspectives, their approach to life, their values and ultimately their behavior, which is also expressed here in this verse, and cause us in her ways to go. In other words, to go in the ways of her wisdom, in the ways of wisdom. Bitcoin, the more you understand it, causes you to go in the ways of wisdom, in the ways of Bitcoin. That's deep. And again, rejoice, rejoice. Emmanuel, God with us, wisdom from on high, has come to us. Wonderful lessons here, wonderful application. And now verse 3. O come, desire of nations. Jesus is the desire of nations because he is the king, the, the ultimate, the best, the perfect king under whose reign we would be the most happy citizens. Essentially, that's the kingdom of God. That's what the kingdom of God is all about. And therefore, Jesus, as the perfect king, is the desire of nations. Now, Bitcoin is often referred to as the perfect money. And as far as that makes the foundation of a kingdom, it makes the foundation of a perfect kingdom. And that's why it is suitable and compatible with the kingdom of God, because it is perfect money. And so when we yearningly call, O come, desire of nations, are we not calling for Bitcoin as the foundation of the kingdom of God? Bind all peoples in one heart and mind, referring to Jesus as Lord, uniting the hearts of mankind as citizens of one kingdom living in peace and prosperity. Is that not the hope of what Bitcoin represents? Bid envy, strife, and quarrels cease. Again, is that not what Bitcoin does? Does it not command envy, strife, and quarrels to cease? Not your keys, not your coins. That means you can't argue if it's yours or not. If you hold the keys, it's yours. If not, it's not. So quarrels cease under Bitcoin. Strife ceases because you don't need to fight to hold what is rightfully yours, you just hold it. And everyone has the power to do that because everyone can hold a private key. And envy disappears. How does envy disappear? You know, and this is something that 
will grow more and more. That's not that it changes overnight, but ultimately in the understanding of Bitcoin, you realize that what you hold as yours implies that what others hold of Bitcoin as theirs is truly theirs. And to the degree that you value your ability to hold what is truly yours, you understand and accept that other people can hold what is truly theirs. And that understanding, that perspective, that paradigm is contrary to envy. Envy is wanting what is not yours. But Bitcoin teaches exactly the opposite. And the more we adopt Bitcoin and the more we understand it and use it and the more it shapes our thinking, the less envious we become. Fill the whole world with heaven's peace. That's universal Bitcoin adoption. Fill the whole world with heaven's peace, with the peace of the heavenly kingdom. You've often heard that Bitcoin is the answer to all the wars in the world. That's what this is talking about right here. And so Bitcoin is a gift from God, just as Jesus Christ was a gift from God. It's a gift that embodies the value of the whole planet. You could even say the whole universe. Just as Jesus Christ, as the gift of God, was a gift that embodied the whole world and even the whole universe. Insofar as Jesus Christ was the creator and had every right as the creator over this planet. But he set that aside. He, he laid his rights as creator aside to become a man, to become one of us, to become of the lineage of Adam, so that as a man, and remember that man was given dominion over the earth, as a man, Jesus came to walk in the ways of God perfectly, to obey his law perfectly, and to, in that way, take back the dominion of this world from under the influence of Satan. Because Jesus was in no way obedient to Satan. He was in no way a servant to Satan. He, by contrast, he made himself obedient to God the Father. Time and time again, it's emphasized, I do the works of my Father, Jesus said. And so by perfect obedience to God the Father, Jesus Christ secured his right as a child of God, to dominion over this world. And then comes the amazing thing of his sacrifice on the cross. And Paul explains it like this in one of his letters. He explains that Jesus, in essence, made out a will, a last will and testament, in which he deeded his dominion over this world to all those who believe in him. And then when he was killed on the cross... That last will and testament went into effect. And in essence, what he secured through his perfect obedience to the will of God was given, that is, his dominion over this world, was given to all those who believe in him. That means you and I have a right in the dominion of this planet not by virtue of our obedience to God, but by virtue of the fact that Jesus was obedient to God and he willed his right to dominion over this planet to you and me because of our faith in him. That's basic Christianity, but in the light of Bitcoin, it goes a step further. Bitcoin expresses 
in legal terms, it represents the actual delivery of that promise, of that ability to own our fraction, to administer, to steward our part of the planet through our share of Bitcoin out of the 21 million. Do you understand what's really happening with Bitcoin? God is giving in Bitcoin. God is distributing the inheritance that he willed to his people so long ago. God is now distributing that to his people through Bitcoin. And you can say, well, but how come the wicked can buy Bitcoin just the same? And I will say it's because God is no respecter of persons and he gives everyone a chance. But ultimately, time will tell what the wicked do with their Bitcoins. The Bible has a lot to say about that. Jesus Christ himself has a lot to say about that. For example, the wicked lay up treasures for the righteous. So don't worry about wicked Bitcoiners that might hold a lot of money, a lot of Bitcoins. Those Bitcoins are held up in store for the righteous. And whether that wicked person hodls those coins or they get lost forever or they ultimately get spent one way or another, either their value, if they are ultimately lost or hodled indefinitely, you could say, their value will infuse into the remaining coins on the market. And again, that value is just redistributed. Just as Jesus said, the wicked lay up treasures for the righteous. And if the wicked spend their coins, that initiates the percolation of those coins into the wider economy and ultimately to be received by the righteous because the wicked lay up treasures for the righteous. To make this a lot easier to comprehend, look at it from the perspective of laziness versus productivity. Laziness is wicked. Productivity is righteous. That's pretty much a universal understanding in Christianity. And we can see in the world how the lazy, the rent seekers, those who want to earn an income by doing nothing, like banks that take 10% or 5% or whatever percent just for moving money from point A to point B, which costs nothing in today's day and age, or those who print money to send it into the economy and then uh, get more money back than what they put in. That's pure laziness. It's an expression of laziness. Getting something for nothing, not having to work. That mindset, that, that advantage to laziness does not exist in Bitcoin. Because whatever value you get, whatever Bitcoins you get, you have to spend them in order for them to become practical. And you're not going to get more Bitcoins back unless you do something constructive, something non-lazy, something productive in order to acquire more Bitcoin again. And so in the scenario that Bitcoin has been globally adopted, there will be no place for laziness anymore. And in that way, you can see how true it is that the wicked lay up treasures for the righteous. So I think that was an episode. We've covered a lot. We talked about how the celebrations of Christianity today are basically not done in truth. And I've kind of taken you through an example of how we can sort of reappropriate the songs and traditions and the understanding, the meaning of Christmas to the circumstances and situations 
that we face in today's world, especially in the financial sense, which underpins all other aspects of society. And so I hope that in the future, we as Bitcoiners, and, and particularly as Christian Bitcoiners, I hope that we can reinvigorate the flame, the warmth, the hope, the joy of the Christmas season through an understanding of how Bitcoin as a gift from God has come to us in this day and age. As always, there's so much more that could be said, and I didn't even get to talk at all about the true date of Christ's birth. And that's probably just as well, because that information is available in other formats, and you can research that on your own. Look for the article entitled Christmas 2.0. But for the purposes of this episode, I think we covered the point that I wanted to cover, and I hope that it has encouraged you to look at Christmas in a new way, to look at it more in line with the concept of Hanukkah, which had to do with rededicating, that is to say, re-founding the temple of God, re-establishing his kingdom here on earth. And we can do that right now with the help of Bitcoin in a way that grants us freedom, ransom from the captivity of the fiat financial world. I want to ask you to dedicate yourself as a vessel as a spiritual vessel, use your mind to take in Bitcoin and to let that affect your words as you speak to others and share with them how Bitcoin has changed your life as a Christian. And I want to ask you to go forward as a holy vessel to serve the purposes of the kingdom of God, which on earth is founded financially on the system of Bitcoin. Please share this podcast, support the podcast. One way that you can share it is by supporting it because your support would allow boosting and bringing it before the eyes of more people on the value-for-value podcasting platforms like Fountain. And in that way, you can bring the joy of a savior to other people around you. And by the way, this week, there was a good example of how Bitcoin does serve the purposes of the Savior in real life. Argentina announced that Bitcoin can be used to settle debts in Argentina. That means, essentially, in practice, that means Bitcoin is legal tender there. And that means a ransom has been made for the people. So Merry Christmas to Argentina. And may the people of Argentina welcome this gift of the Savior that can help them through the turbulent days that are ahead in their nation. And may that same hope extend to people all around the world in whatever circumstances they are facing. God bless you. And I don't know whether to say Merry Christmas or Happy Hanukkah or... How about we change it completely and say, blessed Bitcoining. I leave you with that. Bye-bye.